Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson from Hilltop Community Church, and today's message is from our series in Acts titled Continuation. Today, Kirk Atsorki is going to be teaching from Acts chapter 24, verses 1 through 27, so make sure to have your Bibles open and ready to go. Because in this episode, we're going to be discussing what to do when we are faced with our own faults and shortcomings before God. We're also going to be talking about how to deal with the feelings of guilt and judgment that can come along with that realization. Now, God has some incredible answers in store for us in His Word, so let's open up our Bibles and dig into this passage together. Big thanks to Des and uh, the rest of the team there working on missions. Uh, we do we truly believe that this is an important part of who a church is. Um, I've spoken with different people on how they judge the health of a church. I had one guy tell me that he judges it based upon the size of the middle school youth group. Um, if you've got people bringing their family, you know things are going well. Uh, I've also heard another one say that the, the church's willingness to reach outside of their walls is a huge indication of their health. Um, and so we, we have a lot of people that are very much involved with making sure that uh, missionaries across the globe are supported as well as uh, some local missions as well. Uh, as a church family, we believe that you know we want to be a home for the growing family of God. We want to give each and every individual an opportunity to meet Jesus, to trust Jesus, and then learn how to follow him. Um, and we don't believe that that's something that just happens here at this building, but it's something we want to be a part of across the, the globe. The other thing is we learn from our missionaries a lot. Um, when you get to hear about the things that are going on in Africa or Josiah Venture is a group that's very strategic in the way that they reach out to people. Um, we've learned a lot from our missionaries. So it's not just us supporting them, but they definitely guide and, and support us as well. And so that's something that's a neat part of being involved in missions. If you have a heart or a curiosity, I do encourage you to not, not uh, sit on that, but to do something with it and talk to one of us. If you're, if you're passionate about missions or you're just curious about missions, um, you're welcome to get involved in one way or another. So uh, the other thing is, as we get into Acts chapter 24, uh, the three greatest missionary journeys that the church has ever recorded are in Acts. Uh, so the, the, the guy named Saul of Tarsus who's persecuting the church, he meets Jesus as he's on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians. And uh, Jesus appears to him and dramatically, uh, dramatically transforms who he is as an individual. Um, he changes his name from Saul to Paul as he becomes uh, the, the, gen, uh, excuse me, the, the apostle to the Gentiles. He's the person that's carrying the gospel to non-Jewish people. And so he actually adopts a non-Jewish name. And he goes on three really great missionary journeys. And we read about those uh, in the book of Acts. We've actually reached the end of those missionary journeys. And at the end of Paul's third missionary journey, he's gone around to the churches that he's helped plant in Asia Minor. He's strengthened them and also uh, interacted with some people that are, are hearing about Jesus for the first time. And then on his way home, he's told both by the Spirit of God and a prophet named Agabus that when he goes back to Jerusalem, he is nothing but chains and affliction await him. So he knows when he returns to Jerusalem, trouble is coming. And he gets back into Jerusalem and he brings this gift into the city. He offers the gift to the local church and uh, then he, he enters into what they call a Nazarite vow where he's going through a, a process of purification in a very Jewish way. And the accusation against Paul is that he's telling people to abandon the customs of Moses. Uh, that he's telling even Jewish people that they should stop being Jewish in pursuing Jesus. And that's not, not something Paul ever said. What, what was clear, both from Acts chapter 15 and the council in Jerusalem and the rest of Paul's ministry, that if you were not Jewish, you didn't have to become Jewish to follow Jesus. And so there's this freedom uh, and expression of your heritage and who you are to follow Jesus. Um, but what he's accused of is that he's, he's an enemy of Rome and that he's an enemy of uh, the, the people of Judaism in Jerusalem. 
And so three times, uh, the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem has tried to kill Paul. And all three times, uh, God has used the Roman government to keep that from happening. And so that's what we're going to look at as we get into Acts chapter 24. He's gone to Jerusalem. He's been captured by the Sanhedrin. Uh, a guy named Lysi uh, Claudius Lysias steps in and keeps Paul from being killed. He's a Roman commander. He takes him into his protection. He tries to hold a trial with him. That thing goes sideways in Jerusalem. And then he, tr he learns about a plot to kill Paul in Jerusalem. And they try transfer Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea, uh, which is about 75 miles away. It would have been a two-day journey for them. They'd have stopped halfway in uh, Antipatris, and then they'd have gone the rest of the way into Caesarea. So Paul is being held by the governor Felix in Caesarea inside Herod's temple. Okay, so he's being protected and held for trial. And what we're going to read in this chapter is the trial. So... Some of the things that are going to come up in this trial is, as a Christian, what should we be guilty of? Um, Paul's going to stand in front of him and he's going to say, I'm guilty of four things. Um, and as Christians, we should be guilty of these four things. Uh, the other thing that comes up in this passage is after Paul's trial, he spends some time with the governor, Felix. Um, and what happens in these conversations between Paul and Felix is Felix becomes aware of his shortcomings, his faults, and his sin. And so the question is, when we become aware of of our shortcomings, our faults, and our sin, what should we do? Um, do you have an answer for that? When you become aware of the, there's, there's something fundamentally wrong about you, there's something fundamentally wrong about your approach to God, and that you hurt other people when you don't put God first, what should you do? Right, what, repent. What, that's what you should do. We're going to get into what that looks like. I'm going to show you, Felix doesn't do this, um, but there are several places in Scripture that show us the way that we're to interact with those things. The other thing is, what should we do with feelings of guilt and fear of judgment? Um, one of the things that ex Felix expresses is a fear of judgment. Um, what, what should you do with feelings of guilt? Uh, what should you do with a fear of, of judgment that is to come before God? And, and what, I'll, what I'll posit to you is that people do one of two things. They either get afraid like Felix and they hide. Or they say there's nothing wrong with me and they pride. We do one of those two things. We either hide or we pride. We run away and we act like everything's fine. Or we say there's nothing wrong with me and we puff up our chests and say we're fine. We don't need God. And both of those are going to be the wrong way to interact with God. Um, so let me pray and then we'll, we'll jump into this passage. So, Father, we come to you this morning wanting to understand who you've called us to be as Christians. What should we be known for? Uh, what attitudes and behaviors should mark us out as followers of your son, Jesus? Um, what should we do when we're accused of, of things that aren't true about us? Uh, and then when we are accused or things that are true about us and are wrong are, are brought to our attention, what should we do then? Um, when it's clear that I've, I've gone my own direction and I haven't followed you, when it's clear that um, I've put myself on, on the throne of the universe and declared myself God about what's right and what's wrong and go my own direction, what should I do when it's clear that that's what I've done? And uh, so, so for us as individual Christians and as a family of Christians, we, we pray that you would show us what it is to follow you as, as our Lord Jesus. But I also pray for those here this morning who have not surrendered to you as their Lord and Savior, uh, that they would see that there is something fundamentally wrong, wrong about their core. We are, there's something fundamentally broken about us. And that your son Jesus went to the cross to pay for that. And that he was raised from the dead to replace our brokenness with wholeness. Um, and that you invite each and every one of us to repent and believe, to trust you and follow you. 
and in that experience life like we could never have it without you. And so I pray that all this is clear this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, last time I went way over, but I just shortened my introduction by like four minutes, so I think we're going to be okay. Um, it also means I left some things out, so if you leave confused, you can bother me later. Um, all right, verse 1 of chapter 24 says, Five days later, Ananias, the high priest, came down with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. So they leave Jerusalem and they make their way to Caesarea. These men presented their case against Paul to the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus began to accuse him and said, We enjoy great peace because of you, and reforms taking place uh, for the benefit of this nation because of your foresight. We acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with utmost gratitude. But so that I will not burden you any further, I request that you would be kind enough to give us a brief hearing. And so Paul's trial before Felix begins here. And so this the Sanhedrin's lawyer, this guy named Tertullus, uh, he, he begins with uh, flattering Felix a little bit. And most of the things he says aren't true. Um, he says, we enjoy great peace because of you. We know from the history books that Felix was a person who was uh, ill-tempered. Uh, he was uh, an agitator of the Jews and that there were lots of rebellions under him. And a lot of the people that led those rebellions died on a cross. Uh, they were crucified. And so the fact that they've enjoyed great peace under him is, is not true. Um, the, and that there were reforms taking place for the benefit of the nation because of his foresight. Felix was not known as a man of foresight, but as somebody who just sort of dealt with things in the moment, usually with anger. Um, so what, what this lawyer is saying is, is not true, but he's going to flatter him because partially because he knows he's got to walk on eggshells. He doesn't want to tick this guy off. Um, we know of Felix. He was, he was the first freedman in Roman history to hold the title of governor. Uh, he's been in this position for five years at the time of Paul's trial. So this is 57 AD. Um, and again, Felix is widely known for, for a hunger for power, cruelty, and violent mood swings. Um, he's, he's a guy who's in power that you wish he wasn't. Um, and, and the opening lines here is he's basically flattering him because he doesn't want to be on his wrong side. But then he says, let me, let me share with you what's going on with Paul. And he picks that up in verse 5. We have found this man to be a plague, an agitator among the Jews throughout the Roman world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And so he says that this guy's a pest and a destroyer. And he's somebody who sets into motion violence. He's somebody that brings problems for the Jews throughout the Roman world. He's been all over Asia Minor, 10 different provinces that he's visited during his missionary journeys. And... Uh, He's been a ringleader, so the one who stands up first in the sect of the Nazarenes. Uh, this, this group of people that are following this guy from Nazareth named Jesus, he is, he is their ringleader and he is nothing but trouble. He even tried to desecrate, verse 6, and that means to profane uh, the sanctuary. He, he brought, they accused him of bringing a Gentile into the Jewish only part of the temple. He even tried to desecrate the temple, so we apprehended him. Now, there in verse 6, some of your Bibles include, uh, it says, And we wanted to judge him according to the law, but Lysias the commander took him from our hands with great force, commanding his accusers to come. Um, and what, what this is, is it's restating things that have already happened. It's interesting that we have lots and lots of copies of the New Testament. Um, and this is one where some of those copies of the New Testament, some of the manuscripts don't include this little line. It doesn't change the meaning of what's, ha what's going on. Um, it's still the truth. It's probably something that somebody added later in order to provide clarification, um, but it doesn't change the meaning of the text. When you get into textual criticism of the New Testament, you'll find that 99.7 of the manuscripts 
match. Um, and the places where they don't match, it's usually like the tense of a verb or something small like this that doesn't change the meaning of the text. It just adds to uh, what, what is already understood. So anyway, that's, an, uh, that's a little side note. Um, but it says, we apprehended him. And then goes on and says, by examining him yourself, you will be able to discern the truth about these charges we bring against him. The Jews joined in the attack, alleging that these things were true. So uh, the lawyer stands up and he makes two claims against Paul. He says that he's stirring up dissension and leading others into rebellious actions. He is an enemy of Rome, right? That's the first claim against him. And then he says he desecrates the temple. He is an enemy of Jerusalem. And so what the lawyer is doing with Felix is he's saying, we're on the same side. Um, Paul is your enemy as a Roman governor, and he's our enemy as somebody who's teaching people to worship God in a different way than traditional Judaism. So that's, he's your enemy and our enemy. That's what, that's what the lawyer is trying to accomplish in this. Okay. Um, and, and as you look at it, Paul's going to respond here in verse 10. It says, when the governor motioned for him to speak, that's Paul, Paul replied, because you have been a judge of the nation for many years, I'm glad to offer my defense in what concerns me. You can verify for yourself that there, that no more than 12 days, it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. They didn't find me arguing with anyone or causing a disturbance among the crowd, either in the temple or the synagogues or anywhere in the city. Neither can they prove the charges they are making against me. And so Paul stands up and he says... Uh, they can't prove what they're saying. And uh, I, I, was, I was there, no question about that. I was in Jerusalem. Um, but what I was doing is they didn't find me arguing with anyone, and they didn't find me causing a disturbance. And that word disturbance, it means to pressure others to violence. Um, and you can kind of picture a sideways glance from Paul as he said this, because three times the Sanhedrin has pressured other people to violence to kill him. And so he's saying, I didn't pressure anyone to violence, but guess who did? Right? There's sort of a sideways glance going to the, the leaders at this point in time. But what Paul does is he addresses Felix with uh, some care and straightforward honesty. Um, he's, he's happy to present his, his case to Felix because he believes he can show that the Jewish authorities are the ones who are actually the liars and agitators in this situation, not him. Now he goes on in verse 14. He says, but I admit this to you. I worship the God of my ancestors according to the way which they call a sect, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and written in the prophets. I have hope in God, and these men themselves also accept that there will be a resurrection, both of the righteous and the unrighteous. I strive to have a clear conscience towards God and men. After many years, I came to bring charitable gifts and offerings to my people. While doing this, some of the Jews of Asia found me ritually purified in the temple without a crowd and without an uproar. It is they who ought to be here before you to bring charges, if they have anything against me. Or let these men here state what wrongdoing they found in me when I stood before them at the Sanhedrin. Other than this one statement I shouted while standing among them, today I am on trial before you concerning the resurrection of the dead. So there's a handful of things that you might not pick up in this interaction without a little historical background. One is that the Jewish leadership, they say this is a sect of the Nazarenes. Um, and in saying that, uh, the, the common phrase, and you see this in Jesus' uh, ministry as well, that nothing good comes from Nazareth. Uh, the idea was that they're a bunch of backwater hicks with no education, and they're, gonna, they're standing here trying to teach us about who God is. Here's these backwater hicks that don't 
understand the Bible. And we're the upright, powerful people in Jerusalem. Who do they think they are trying to talk to us this way? So the, the, the phrase, the sect of the Nazarenes, was a derogatory way to talk about Christians. Um, Paul says they call us that. We consider ourselves the way. Uh, we actually believe, and Paul brings this out, that uh, we're not backwater hicks with no understanding of the scripture. And Paul standing before them would have been difficult for them because Paul was one of them. He was somebody who was raised in Jerusalem under the teaching of the greatest rabbi of the time, Gamaliel. He is the brightest mind among them. He knows the scriptures just as good or better than any of them. And he says, this isn't some backwaters idea. This is the truth of all human history shown to us in the Old Testament that a suffering servant would come and die on our behalf to take away the consequences of sin, to pay for sin once and for all, that he would be raised from the dead, uh, that he would be born of a virgin. He, all these things in the Old Testament point to the suffering servant that we understand to be Jesus. He is the Messiah. So this isn't some backwaters idea. All of human history and the Bible point to a Messiah who would come and save us from the consequences of our sin. And so kind of it's, it's in the text, but you have to look for it. That's some of the argument that's going on here in this trial. Um, and I think if you're a follower of Jesus, you may have heard this argument at some point in time in your life. I remember in, in 10th grade biology, I'm sitting with one of, one of my classmates, and for some reason, the Bible and Christianity came up. And the biology teacher walked by, and he looked down at me, and he said, only an idiot would believe the Bible. And it was like, okay. Um, and then when I went to university, one of the first things that I dealt with was humanities courses that tell me all about how the Bible is wrong and how it, you can't trust it. And there's miracles in it. And science doesn't go with miracles. And so it has to be just, you know, fairy tales and, and, and stories that maybe they could teach us some morals, but they don't have any historical value. And they certainly aren't the climax of human history. Like Jesus dying on a cross certainly isn't the climax of human history. We're postmodernists. We're the climax of, home, of human history. Um, I'm God, not Jesus, right? So that's what you deal with in these circumstances. And you're told you must be some sort of backwaters hick that doesn't have an understanding of truth. And so this is still something that we have to address in our world today. No, uh, all of human history points to the fact that people have rebelled against God. You ever read a history book and gone, boy, we've done well, right? Like, that's not what we do when we read history books. All we see is fighting and strife and one group of people trying to overcome take another. And one group of people saying, I'm right and you're wrong. Even when they become moral relatives and they say, I'm right and you're wrong, they still tell you you're wrong if you don't agree with what they say. It's, it's the same story over and over again. We never get along. And what the cross is all about is it's, a, it's an acknowledgement that humanity is broken. At its very core, humanity is broken. And, and the brokenness we understand to be sin. We have a fallen nature that rejects God as the God of the universe. And we have sinned against God and then in sinning against God. We've sinned against each other and we're all guilty, each and every one of us. And so God sends his son and all of human history and the Old Testament point to this suffering Messiah who would die on a cross for the remission of sin, the payment of sin once and for all, and that anyone who looks to him and trusts confesses that there's a brokenness in me and I trust the death of Jesus Christ to pay for that brokenness. There's something fundamentally wrong
wrong about my approach to God as a rebel, and he died as a rebel for me. I've hurt other people, and constantly I find myself wanting to love, but instead I take. I find myself wanting to give, but I'm always taking from others. And Christ died for that. He died for the brokenness that is within me. He died for my rebellion against God, and he died for all the times that I've hurt other people. And then he was proven to be the Messiah three days later by raising from by, by rising from the dead and appearing to hundreds of eyewitnesses. And then he ascended into heaven, giving his authority to the apostles. And we now stand on the shoulders of apostolic authority that this is who God is. He's Jesus Christ. And he came to pay for our sins once and for all and give us new life. And that's essentially what Paul says. He says, I'm guilty on four accounts. I'm a follower of Jesus. I proclaim Jesus as the Messiah and I believe in his resurrection from the dead. I live, he says, I live with before God and men with a clean conscience. Now that's an interesting line because if, if you know your life, you know that you're not perfect and you've probably ne never met anyone and thought they're perfect. And if you did, it didn't last long, right? Um, nobody's perfect. And so it's interesting. Paul says, I live with a clean conscience before God and men, but he's not saying I'm perfect. So how do you live with a clean conscience before God and men while being imperfect? How do I live with a clean conscience before God and men while still, while wanting to do good, accidentally harm someone that I love? Like, how do I live with a clean conscience? And what the scriptures point to us over and over again is that we confess, we agree with God. When I said that thing and it came across the wrong way, I confess that I had a wrong motive and that, that wasn't love when I did that. And I'm sorry that I hurt you. Um, and, and I own that before you because I didn't mean to hurt you, but I also own it before God. And so I confess, I agree with God that that wasn't his way. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn away from that. I'm going to say, you know what? I don't want to do that anymore because it didn't turn out that well when I tried to do things on my own. It never does. And so I'm going to I'm going to confess that this was wrong and then I'm going to repent from it. And I'm going to take it to the cross. I'm going to lay it at the foot of the cross. I'm going to allow Jesus to take it. And this is where uh, the verses that were up during that one song come in. Uh, it, it says that Jesus, when he died on the cross, he erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us. He has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. And so when Christ died on the cross... There's a recognition in each and every one of us that all the times that we've blown it, all the times that we've gone against God, all the times that we've hurt our spouse and didn't mean to, all the times that that one word came out with a coworker, why did I do that? All the times that we've given into lust, we've given into anger, we've lived for possessions over God, we've lived for experiences over God. We put something up, up on the throne other than him. We just say, God, I agree with you that that wasn't where life is found. And so I confess that. And I repent from it. I'm going to turn away from it. I'm doing the U-turn. And I'm going to take that thing and I'm going to give it to you because you've already nailed it to the cross. And so you take it, you nail it to the cross, you cancel out its debt. I am wholly in your mercy and grace. And I thank you for that. And I also recognize God that you've made me a new creation in Christ and your spirit indwells me. And so as I repent from this thing, I, I want you to teach me to not go back to it. I don't want to be the, the, the person that returns to the pigsty every time. I don't want to go back there over and over again. I want you to teach me a new pattern of life. And instead Instead of going my own way over and over again, I want you to create in me a new heart, a clean heart that seeks after you. I actually want you to, instead of me desiring this thing that I know is filth, I want you to teach me to desire righteousness. You remember what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And so God, I hunger and thirst for righteousness. I want you. I don't hunger and thirst for lust. I don't hunger and thirst for possessions. I don't hunger and thirst for money. I don't hunger and thirst for experiences. I hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
I want to be filled. And so Paul says, I live with a clean conscience before God and men. And that's how it's done. You don't put on a mask and say, look how good I am. You're transparent. You're honest. You say, hey, you know what? I do blow it. I spoke with a coworker this last week in a way that I shouldn't have. It, it wasn't loving. I should have done it differently. I have a tendency to, to pull away from my kids when they want more from me than I want to give. Because it's easier. But that's not who God wants me to be. And so I confess those things as wrong. And I, and I want you to teach me a new way. I hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not my way. So he lives before God in a clean conscience in that way. And the other thing that he says that he's guilty of, he says, I was in Jerusalem and I was peacefully offering gifts and calmly worshiping in the temple. Uh, the other thing that we should be just guilty of as Christians is, man, I sure love being a part of a church family um, because that's the place where I go to interact with people who build me up. They lift me up. Uh, we spend time in God's word. We worship God together. Like, I can't sing, but Elena, I like singing with her. Um, and, uh, you know, all these different things where you just go, this is good. I enjoy being together. I go there and, you know, there's, there's hidden sin that I have in my life. And instead of just letting it build up, I'm going to talk to somebody about it and say, I, I keep struggling with the same thing over and over again. How do I win? Do any of you wonder? I struggle with the same thing over and over again. How do I win? Well, I'll tell you right now, it's not from hiding and it's not from pride. You, those things won't do it. So a lot of times the Christian experience is you have something that's breaking you on the inside, but you hide it. Right? Jesus says those who enter into the light, they do it because they want righteousness. But those who stay in the dark, stay in unrighteousness. And so you have to step into the light and you have to allow these things to be seen. Not before everybody. You don't need to confess your sin up here in front of everyone. But you do need to have somebody that you say, look, I struggle with this and I'm having a hard time winning. How do we do this together? Have you ever experienced this? Have you ever, have you ever struggled with, with loving your wife? Uh, like I'm struggling with it right now. Have you ever struggled with, with being prideful and, and wanting your own way in every situation? I, I'm having a hard time giving up what I want to bless others. Have you ever struggled with alcohol? Have you ever struggled with drugs? Have you ever struggled with porn? Have you ever struggled with, with pride? You know, you just, whatever it is that God reveals to you as he inspects your heart and you allow him to do that. This is the community where you say, I don't know how to win. Teach me how to win. And what we do is then we look at the scriptures and we say, God has an answer. And that's how, that's what Paul has been doing as he plants churches, as he shares the truth. He's guiding people towards a new and better way found in Jesus. And so what Felix does is he hears this interaction between uh, the Jewish lawyer and Paul. And he says, um, I don't know that I'm going to get an answer today. In verse 22, he says, since Felix was well informed about the way, he adjourned the hearing saying, when Lysias, the commander comes down, I will decide your case. In other words, I hear your point of view. I hear your point of view. Uh, I need to hear from Lysias. I, I don't know that I'm going to get to the bottom of this without him. Verse 23, he ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, though he could have some freedom, and he should not prevent any of his friends from meeting his needs. And so Felix, he, he doesn't want to make this decision without his commander's input, uh, so he stops the trial, gives Paul protection and a degree of freedom. I'm going to see here in a second that Paul is going to be in Caesarea with Felix for another two years. Um, and what, from, a, from the Jewish leader's perspective, they might think this is a win, because Paul's locked up. 
And he's not going to travel around to the churches that he's planted. He's not going to go and equip uh, the saints in those places. He's not going to strengthen their understanding of the God of the Old Testament. He's not going to strengthen their understanding of morality. Uh, he, he's not going to strengthen their understanding of, of Jesus as God. And so for the Jewish leaders, they might think this is a little bit of a win. But what we know is what happens is when, when Paul is locked up, it actually causes the church to grow. Uh, when God removes the leader, what happens is a whole bunch of other leaders stand up. Guys like Timothy and Apollos. And so what happens throughout the Roman world, they think, oh, we got Paul locked up. This will be good. And boy, does it backfire. Because God says, I didn't want just one Paul. I wanted an entire church anyway. Thanks. I'm glad you locked him up. Watch what I'm going to do. And that's what happens. We see throughout all of these different cities, Ephesus and Corinth and all these different places, a new group of leader rises up. God takes the next generation and he strengthens them and he empowers them and they carry the message. Now, God wasn't done with Paul, though. We know that from his imprisonment here in Caesarea, he's going to have a, a really powerful interaction with Felix. But before that, or after that, what he's going to do is Paul's going to write several different letters. Uh, Philemon, Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, 1 Timothy, and Titus were all written during Paul's imprisonment in Rome. So God uses Paul's imprisonment in Rome to grow the early church by, by new leaders stepping up. But the other thing he does is he preserves for us theology and history that we wouldn't have other Otherwise. So God actually uses this in a big way. Uh, we, we still gain tremendous insight from these letters that Paul wrote during this time on what Christianity is and what a proper theology of God is. These are big things that God does. But over the next two years, Paul's going to remain in Caesarea and God has a unique task for him while he's there. He says, you know that political leader, Felix, uh, who loves Rome and is a little bit of a tyrant, a lot of bit of a tyrant, I'm going to have you hang out with him. And so in verse 24, it says, several days later, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and listened on the subject of faith in Christ Jesus. Now, as he spoke about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became afraid and replied, leave now. But when I have an opportunity, I'll call for you. At the same time, he was also hoping that Paul would offer him money. So he sent him quite, so he sent for him quite often and conversed with him. After two years passed, Porcius Festus success, succeeded Felix, and because Felix wanted to do the Jews a favor, he left Paul in prison. And so, an interesting thing happens here. Here's Felix, and he's a freed man, but he's understood to be uh, a, he's understood to be a tyrant. Uh, the historians of the time say that Felix he, he he carried his governorship with all of the tyranny of a slave. So here's somebody who had been enslaved, and all he knows is how to take advantage of other people because that's all he's ever experienced, and he just does it to other people over and over again. Um, they bring up the Luke brings up Drusilla. I think he brings up Drusilla because we know that she was actually the wife of another man and Felix looked at her and said I want her and took her. He, he actually took her out of wedlock to make her his wife. And so here's a guy who he's been a slave all of his life and when he receives freedom what he does with it is he takes advantage of other people. I have power now and so I'm going to use it for my own benefit. And so when, when Paul's talking with him he says that he was willing to talk about the faith in Jesus Christ until he talked about righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come. Uh, and, and this is is, uh, this is what most of us do when righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come uh, is brought to our attention. We, we hide from it. Um, we, we have a lot of excuses 
why we don't need to deal with these problems. And so that word righteousness, uh, it means justice in the widest sense. It's to do what is good, upright, and moral or equitable in every situation. It's to, it's to receive from God the greatest commandment is that we love God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, and that we would love our neighbor as ourselves. And so as we receive from God, we're then able to give and bless others. But we know that this is not who Felix is. He's not a person who puts God first. He puts himself first and he takes from others, even to the point that he would steal another man's wife. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, this is part of who each and every one of us are or were. This is part of us that, that we, we didn't put God first or we don't put God first. And because of that, we're in a situation where we have to take from others. And so we lack righteousness because we're not vessels of grace and blessing. We're vessels of pride and taking. And the other word here is self-control. And that, that word was used for control of passions or desires. It was, it was used widely for the control of sexual desires. Here, it probably includes Felix bribe-making tendencies invoked for his lust for power and money. But he says, righteousness, do you live in a way that blesses other people? Self-control, do you have control over uh, the lusts, the desires, that, the impulses that you have in any given moment? Or do you just live by your desires and your impulses? And then the judgment to come, this refers to Jesus' return when two final judgments of humanity will take place. And I've got this on your handout. Um, there's two judgments. One is the great white throne judgment, and this is only unbelievers. Um, now, depending upon your view of end times, um, we have a, a pre-millennial view that, that Jesus will return, he'll rapture the church, and that for a thousand years he'll rule on earth from Jerusalem. And so at the end of that thousand year rule, Jesus is the judge, and the basis of the judgment of unbelievers is their rejection of the Savior. It places them under this judgment. Uh, their works show that they are inwardly broken, rebellious, and sinful towards God in thought, word, and deed. Uh, they do not deserve eternal reward now, nor have they lived for it. And so this is this is individuals, people who have rejected God. Uh, I don't need a savior. I'm fine by myself. I don't I don't need someone to pay for the wrong in my life. I'll do it myself. Um, I don't want to deal with the struggle in my life because I'm too afraid to do it. I'd rather hide. And what you have to understand is that Jesus came and demonstrated love and grace and kindness for all of those things. He, he doesn't want anyone to stand in this place. Uh, but that's what this judgment is based on. I reject the Savior. I stand on my own two feet. I'm good without God. And the final destination or the result of this is described as the lake of fire. It's a place of anguish and pain as both fallen humanity and fallen angelic beings are loosed on each other without any restraint of their evil tendencies. Um, the scriptures teach that of the angelic forces, a third of them rebelled with Satan. At this final judgment, they're taken and they're locked up and they're cast into the lake of fire along with all who have rejected God and said they want to stand on their own two feet. And it's a terrifying place of gnashing of teeth and anguish because all the evil tendencies that you have and all the evil tendencies that other humanity, other humans have, and all the evil tendencies of angelic beings are put in this place and God is removed from it. There is no restraint of evil. We often think of hell as a place of torment and anguish because someone would be doing that to us. The truth of it is, when you go there, you'll be looking to torment others as well. That's the, that's the, the awfulness of this place. 
Because there is no God, there is no good. So it's a terrifying place. And that's what Felix expresses. He says he's terrified and he voids the conversation. Now the other believing, uh, the other judgment would be the, the judgment seat of Christ. And this is when Christ returns. It's only believers are there. And it's after the church is called home or raptured. Um, its basis is repentance and acceptance of Jesus as Lord and Savior. Believers from the time of their salvation onward are then judged and rewarded. Um, these people are new creations in Christ, graciously molded and prepared for eternal reward. They have set their heart on eternal reward and relationship with Jesus. Uh, maybe struggling with it. Like I said, nobody's perfect, but they're on their way towards this place of perfection. And so that is their reward. Uh, it's described as a new heavens and a new earth. It's a place of peace, prosperity, and wholeness. It is without sin or death, as evil is eradicated from dwelling there. And there's also uh, rewards or loss of rewards based on a believer's works. It says form, but from the time of salvation forward. And so the conversation at this judgment is not... It does not include all of your life before believing in Jesus. No matter what happened during that time. No matter, no matter how immoral you were. No matter if you were involved in terrible things. No matter what you did before believing in Jesus, there's no conversation about it. Because it was nailed to the cross. Think about that. There's no conversation about the harm that you've done to others. There's no conversation about your rejection of God. It's all nailed to the cross. Jesus bears all of it. This is a conversation about after you were a believer and I called you into my family, God says, I want to reward you for the times that you honored me as God and blessed other people. So I want to reward you for your marriage and how you loved your spouse. I want to reward you for a job well done in your workplace because you didn't work for people, you worked for me. You worked unto the Lord. I want to reward you for how you raised your children and you cared for them. I want to reward you for how you, Jesus talks about how you cared for the poor, right? You visited him in prison. You cared for his nakedness. You cared for his lack of food. You cared for him. And he says, anytime that you cared for those who are without, you cared for him. And I want to reward you. He wants to reward you for that. That's what this conversation is. Um, the scriptures talk about when Christ returns at this point, there's a giant banquet. And it says that there's choice, uh, there, there's choice meat and fine wine. And we all get together and we have a feast and we talk about what God has done in and through us. It's this awesome celebration of God's grace dispensed through us. And so that's exciting. There's no terror in that. Now, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, there are those who will get there and there won't be a lot of reward conversation. And that's because they live their life for temporal things rather than eternal things. And so part of our motivation in living our life as Christians, not all of it, but part of it is we live for this eternal reward. You don't want to get to the banquet and say, you know, you get the award, and I've used this before, I know, but you get the award for the best bench warmer, right? That's not the award you want. You want to get there and you want, you want to hear about how awesome... Uh, you know, you, you, you live by the Spirit and you loved your wife. You live by the Spirit and you blessed your neighbor. You live by the Spirit and you stood up for truth. Uh, you were a vessel of God's grace and truth throughout your life and I want to reward you for that. And so, the reaction to hearing about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, uh, the conversation with God is... 
I've trusted in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And because Christ died for me, and I confess what is wrong in me, and I repent of it, and believe on the name of the Lord Jesus, I'm saved. From the point of salvation forward, what God wants to talk to me about is the times where he rewards me. The times where he says, good job, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's the conversation that we have with God at this judgment. The other conversation is one that I, I really hope you don't have to have with God. And you know what? Jesus doesn't want you to have it either. And that other conversation is people who say, I reject my need of a savior. I reject Jesus as my savior. I, I stand on my own two feet. And he says, you can stand on your own two feet, but the consequences are eternal. Don't do it. Instead, look to God and say, you're right, God, there is something fundamentally broken about me. I don't approach you like you were my father. I approach you with fear. I don't approach you as though you were the ruler of my life. Instead, I determine what's right and wrong for myself. I, I let society determine these things. I don't think like you think. I don't have a heart like you have. And so, God, I want you to change me and transform me and forgive me. And the way that we do that is not by hiding. And it's not by living in pride. We come before the throne and we kneel and we say, God, I need your salvation. I believe that Jesus Christ died for the consequences of my sin and then he rose from the dead to prove that he was the Messiah and to give me new life. I now live in a saved, saving relationship through the blood and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't stand on my own two feet. I trust you. And when you do that, you're saved. Felix hides. But then the other thing, and I need to be brief here because we don't have a lot of time. Um, the other thing that, that we do as Christians is we then say, okay, well, I had that initial conversation about confession and repentance, but I'm going to live the rest of my life like that was a one-time conversation. And so when sin comes into my life, I'm either going to get in the dark and hide. Hey, guys, everything's fine. You can't see me, right? I don't want to stand in the light because you'll see my imperfections. But what God calls us to do is to stand in the light and allow our imperfections to be seen. And, and you can talk to anybody. If you've done this thing where you hide in the dark for a long period of time, all you're doing is letting an infection grow. It's going to pop eventually. If you think you can hide in the dark with, with some sort of addiction and not deal with it, it won't work. If you think you can hide in the dark with pain about what's happened to you in your life and not deal with it, it won't work. You have to stand in the light, talk to somebody, and work through these things. You have to confess that, that this is what is wrong about me. I repent from it. I give it to the cross, and I receive wholeness from Jesus. If you don't do that, the Christian experience will be just like your experience before knowing God. Very frustrating. But if you're willing to confess God, if you're willing to say, search me, O God, and know my heart, see if there's any anxious or hurtful way in me. And when he reveals it, you say, God, I confess this is wrong. I repent from it. I take it to the cross and I stand up a new creation longing for a new pattern of life. God, I hunger and thirst for righteousness. Fill me. You live a different way. But hiding won't work and neither will being prideful and putting on a mask and pretending like everything's okay. Neither will get the job done. Authenticity and transparency are a requirement of spiritual growth. You won't experience it without it. 
Now, if you haven't believed in Jesus, I'm going to read this line from uh, Acts chapter 2 where Peter is speaking to the people. He says, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call. He's calling you today. Many other words he has testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. And my question for you, if you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, will you be saved today by trusting him? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for our time together. Uh, we thank you that you're not too worried about the clock. <laughs> An extra five minutes of time with you together is not going to put us pointed in the wrong direction. And so, God, we thank you that we can be together. We thank you that we can worship. We thank you that we can learn from your word. God, will we confess? You, you bring to mind the things that we need to deal with. And I pray that each person in the room would confess those, repent from them, take them to the cross, allow you to nail them there, and experience new life in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We really hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. We also hope that you're able to join us again next week as we continue studying the powerful truths that God has revealed to us in the book of Acts. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we are so glad that you are a part of the family.